Well, good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Um, if you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. And just kind of on that note, if you are new or if, if this is your first time and you're visiting with a friend or something, uh, we encourage you to stick around. We have refreshments and it's uh, one of those weeks where we have something that we call connections and coffee or coffee and connections. I forget which one, which one is first, but it's both. Okay. It's connections and coffee. And some of the pastors and elders will be around to answer any questions you have about church. Uh, and then kind of on that note too, we have membership class coming up next month. So if you're looking to, to make Zoe your church home, or you're just trying to figure out kind of if you want to make Zoe your church home, uh, membership class might be for you. Uh, and at Zoe, right, we don't say you have to become a member to be here or to be involved to a certain extent. Um, but if you want to serve in certain ways, uh, if you want to lead anything, and, and we encourage everybody to be a member because it's not just about attendance, but it's about active participation and commitment. So uh, we encourage you to at least check out the class. Hopefully, uh, if you want to be here, then you can kind of get all in and, and we can kind of connect with you in that way. All right, that being said, we are in 2 Samuel, and we will be in 2 Samuel for the next few weeks, and we will actually finish this book, and we started our series in 1 Samuel two years ago in 2021, but we're going to finish right before Resurrection Sunday, uh, Sunday, so Easter time, uh, and then we'll do... Uh, Something about the resurrection, I'm thinking, probably on that day. And then we will start something new. So look forward to that. I'm going to keep it somewhat under wraps so you will be surprised and kind of build that hype. You know what I mean? Anyway, Second Samuel. We're not done with this yet. We're in chapter 18. So we were, uh, we started this chapter last week. We didn't finish the entire chapter. We're going to finish chapter 18 and then we're going to go into the beginning of chapter 19 and kind of look at the fallout of what happened with Absalom's death. And as I've generally been doing in this series, I won't read the entire text up front. We'll open it up as we go along. So the narrative will kind of naturally unfold for us. Uh, so once you get there, hopefully you're there. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we read in your word, uh, as we read from the Psalms, God, I pray that you would revive us again. God, I pray that you would help us to see that life is only found in you. And wherever we're coming from, whatever we're dealing with, God, I pray that we would look to you for the spiritual vitality that we need. God, whether we've been far from you for a long time, whether things have just been dry in our lives, maybe this is our first time, we don't know anything about you. God, I pray that you would meet us. And I pray that you would speak to us through your word. And we know that your word can make the dead alive. We know that it was by your word that you created everything. You said, let there be light, and there was light. So God, I pray that you would do that work in our lives and in our hearts. God, I pray that this time won't be about me and just me talking and talking and talking. I pray that this time would be about you. And I pray that our hearts would be drawn to Christ ultimately, who is revealed in your word and who is the main character. We look to him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Today, normally I start off with some kind of question or story, and that'll happen in a little bit. Um, but before we kind of get into it, I have a, um, 
have something to share. Okay, so I have kind of a confession to make, I guess you could say. Um, I understand that maybe after I say this, you might not view me the same way, but I figure got to say it. Okay, so my confession is, um, and I've come to terms with this, um, my confession is that I'm kind of a uh, Star Trek fan. Okay, I don't know if this is what you thought I was going to go, something really serious. It is kind of serious to you Trekkies out there, but I, okay, I like Star Trek. Okay, I'm a Star Trek fan. Now, the truth is I watched it more when I was young. Okay, so I was kind of into it when I was a little kid. I don't have Paramount Plus. I don't, what am I, made of money? I can't spend $6 a month. So I don't have Paramount Plus. I haven't seen like the five new shows. So I'm not totally up to date. So I kind of feel like, why did I even share this, right? Because I know some of you are huge Star Trek fans. I know you told me or people told me about you. Okay, they gossiped about you. So I know that you're out there and I'm probably not as hardcore as you, but I do own the Star Trek encyclopedia. So I did some of my homework. I read a little bit. The rest of you are like, I knew it. I knew you were a nerd, okay? I knew it, and you're judging me now. What can I say? I get it, okay? Star Trek is not for everybody. But I feel like, as I was saying, that by sharing this, this factoid about myself, by opening up my heart to you guys, that I put myself in a sort of lose-lose situation where I'm not hardcore enough for some of you, and then for the rest of you, uh, I'm way too hardcore about Star Trek. But wouldn't you know it, that's exactly why I'm bringing up Star Trek. Lose-lose situations. Because in Star Trek, there is a famous lose-lose situation. It's called the Kobayashi Maru. And it's a test that all cadets at the Starfleet Academy have to take. Hey, bear with me. This is going to be short, okay? I I see some of you wanting to, like, go to the bathroom right now. Don't go. I'm just going to tell you what happens. Maybe not all cadets. Maybe it's just people who want to be commanding officers. But they take this test at the academy. It's kind of like a military thing. And the way that the test is set up is it's a simulation. And in the simulation, you are the captain of a ship, and you receive a distress call. Okay, and in this distress call, there's a ship called the Kobayashi Maru, hence the name of the test. They're a civilian freighter. They're under attack, and they need help and rescue. You're the only ship nearby. Now, the problem is they are in a place they're not supposed to be, in a place where, according to treaty, you shouldn't go. So if you go over there, if you enter into that place in space, I know this is sounding kind of funny even as I'm saying it, but as you go over there, it's kind of seen as an act of aggression. So this is how the test always goes. Okay, you're the captain, you get a distress call, you go. If you refuse to help, then you fail because that's the whole point of the mission. However, if you attempt a rescue, the test is designed to make you lose. If you try to rescue and you try to get away before enemy ships come, they always catch you and they destroy you. So everyone dies. If you try to fight, you are outgunned and outmanned and you get destroyed and you lose again. Every time, every way you turn, you lose. And this is the point of the Kobayashi Maru. And the reason why they make cadets or, or, you know, future captains undergo this test is in large part because they want people to understand. They want their leaders to understand. They want them to accept that in leadership and in life, I guess, sometimes there's no way to win. Sometimes it is lose-lose. Sometimes you just have to accept that fact. And I bring it up because this is what we see in our passage today in 2 Samuel 18 and 19, a lose-lose situation. Now, you might not have been here. 
Okay, so just to remind you, the book of Samuel, the books of Samuel, they're about the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. Okay, it's the history of how the kingdom started in Israel, going from these kind of ragtag, this ragtag group of 12 tribes to a unified monarchy, a world power at the time. And that's why it's one of the most compelling parts of scripture. That's why people love this part of the Bible, this narrative. It has some of the best stories about David, about Saul, etc. Now, what's been going on lately is that David, who's God's chosen king, has been having massive family issues, starting with his own infidelity. And most recently, his third-born son, the crown prince Absalom, he staged a coup and led a rebellion against his own father. And it's all come to a head last week. See, last week, we witnessed Absalom's unceremonious demise. Joab, the general, stabbed him through the heart with spears and then had his armor bearers basically finish him up, beat him to death, slice him up to death. And you think, okay, well, that was kind of crazy, but great. Problem solved. The, The insurrection is over. David can go back home. However, David, what did he say right before the battle began? He explicitly ordered Joab and the rest of his commanding officers and everybody to deal gently with Absalom because Absalom is his son. So it's a Kobayashi Maru, if you will. Kill Absalom and you end the rebellion and everyone can go home, but then you disobey an order. And David doesn't get the one thing he wants, which is reconciliation or at least his son's life. But it's not like doing the opposite will be better. Because sure, right, Absalom is David's son. If you spare Absalom, you give David what he wants. But is that better for the kingdom? Pretty much everyone agrees no, right? If you spare Absalom, then the rebellion never ends. Even if you bring him back defeated, he is the one who is trying to take the throne. There are people who want to follow him and the rebellion will never end. Not until he's dead. So Joab has already chosen what he thinks is best. He's already taken uh, matters into his own hands. He's already killed Absalom. And someone asked me last week, why don't you talk more about that? Why don't you kind of open that up for us? Why did Joab defy the king? What's going to be the fallout from that? How is David going to react? Well, the reason why I didn't talk about it last week is because that's the focus of this week. It's a lose-lose situation. This week is about the no-win scenario. And I think we all get the concept to a certain extent, right? It, It might help to kind of transport ourselves away from the distant future Star Trek and the distant past David to life right now. We understand what it means to be pulled in different directions. We understand what it means when we realize that we can't please everyone in a certain situation, that someone is going to be mad. Someone's going to be upset no matter what we choose. But I think more specifically, I think we get this tension between love on the one hand and rightness or justice on the other. We get that Absalom deserves death. And yet we also understand at the same time deeply, especially if we're parents, why David would want his son to still be alive, no matter what he's done. We are confronted with the same kind of tension when someone who severely wrongs us asks for forgiveness. He doesn't deserve it. It would seem like it would be wrong to just let it go, to sweep it under the rug. He's got to pay in some way. And yet we know that love is commanded of us, that forgiveness is commanded of us. 
We're confronted with the same kind of tension when we want to turn a blind eye maybe to the faults of someone we are close to, someone we have a soft spot for, maybe an old friend or, you know, a child. We feel a desire to shield them from the consequences of their actions. Why? Not because they deserve it, but because we care for them. So we give them some more money when they ask. Okay, we let them stay with us for a while. How can you have both? That's the question. How can we thread the needle? It would seem like it's impossible. How can we do when it seems, or what can we do when it seems like every option is a losing option in some way? Well, let's get into it. The word of God has something for us. We'll break down this text into three parts as we usually do. Okay, three acts, you could say. Uh, And that means three points. So the first point. Okay, you can write it down if you take notes. If not, just listen. The first point, the dispatch. The dispatch, which is about the need to define what good news really is. Verse 19. Let's get into it. Chapter 18, verse 19. This is the word of God. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of of his enemies. Okay, so real quick, I, I'm not going to belabor this, but let's get on the same page here. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, who is that? Okay, Zadok is the high priest at the time, and Ahimaaz is his son, and Ahimaaz has been on David's side from the beginning. Okay, so he represents the priesthood, he is the, the next high priest, and he has been David's helper in Absalom occupied Jerusalem. He has been the messenger. He's still serving in the temple, but when they find out news, he's the one who's supposed to run and tell David's camp. So you can see why he wants to tell the king the good news of what has happened. The war is over, the rebellion has been put down, uh, things are, are better now, God helped us win. But verse 20, look at this, and Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. So Joab says, not today. Not today, not so fast, son. And the reason is simple. It's because David's son is dead. And what we have here is a clash of perspectives already. We can see that these two people are not seeing the same event the same way. Two people can look at the exact same thing And come to totally different conclusions. Ahimaaz sees Absalom's death as deliverance, as salvation. But Joab, and of course, he's the one who killed Absalom. He can see where Ahimaaz is coming from, but he knows David. And he remembers what David said. He knows that not everyone, especially David, is going to see Absalom's death as a good thing. And so he doesn't want to dispatch someone as faithful as Ahimaaz, as innocent, as Ahimaaz is, to deliver this news to David. Why? Well, you have to read between the lines a little, but it seems pretty clear as the story unfolds. He's not sure how David is going to react. He wants to spare Ahimaaz just in case the reaction is overly emotional. If David lashes out in grief or rage, it's not going to be good for whoever is there in the beginning. And especially if Ahimaaz is going to deliver the news like that, unthinking. Good news, King Absalom is dead. David's not going to take it as good news. I mean, if you look at the next couple of verses, verse 21, then Joab said to the Cushite, 
go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Okay, so it's not that Joab doesn't want David to find out at all. He tells this random, nameless Cushite to go tell the king what he has seen. Let him be the bearer of bad news. It's more like he wants to spare Ahimaaz personally. But Ahimaaz insists, verse 22, Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? And the implication here is even clearer. He says, you're not going to get rewarded for this. You understand that. Okay, it's not going to be received well. And Ahimaaz seems to be getting it because he says, come what may twice, verse 23, come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, go ahead, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Okay, just a small detail that helps us understand how Ahimaaz outruns him. The battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Remember that? The terrain was rugged and hard. There were hills and dips and valleys and trees. Ahimaaz, he runs by the plain. He takes the long way, but it's easier to run on and he gets there faster. Now, okay, that being said, why so much focus on this conversation? Why so much focus? Why so much attention? At the end of the day, right, who cares? You know, let's get on with it. Let's get to the news. Let's see David's reaction. But see, the reason why the Bible focuses on this, hearing this, see, hearing this conversation helps us anticipate how the news is going to be received. Do you see that? In the camera, okay, it shifts to the other side, but we've already been set up. We know that people are going to view this differently. Now look at what happens with David, verse 24. And I'll read a few verses. Verse 24, now David was sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. So David is sitting at kind of the entrance of the city. There are two gates, one in the out, one in the in, like innermost part. And he's sitting there and he's waiting to see if there's going to be anything coming Verse 25, the watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth, and he drew nearer and nearer. Verse 26, the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. He is a good man, therefore he is coming with good news. Now, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, actually, I shouldn't start it that way. It's a true story, I think. But once there was a king named King Croesus. He was the king of Lydia uh, in the ancient world, like 6th century BC. He was a real person. There are a lot of legends kind of in Greek literature about him. But he was a real person. And the thing about King Croesus was he used to have this rule that anyone who brought him bad news would be executed. Right? He wanted positive vibes only. That's kind of what he was about back in the day. So he said, don't bring me any bad news. If you try to tell me something bad, you're going to die. So what do you think happened? Only good things happened to him from then on, right? No, people didn't want to share the truth with him, right? People, if they had bad news, they would hide it or they would twist it or they would lie. He thought things were fine. It was working out. He never felt stressed. But people withheld anything that he might consider bad, even if he needed to hear it. And this all came to a head when one day his son, who was out fighting in battle, was killed. And of course, they sent a messenger to tell the king the bad news because he needs to grieve this. He needs to process this. He needs to be properly prepared when the army comes home. 
But this guy, this messenger was too afraid to tell the truth, as you would be if you cared about your life. So he simply said that, hey, we won the battle. And Croesus was overjoyed, right? His son was there fighting. We won. We had victory. And he throws the celebration. He's so happy until the army comes back and his son isn't there. And Croesus was devastated. And not just because his son died, but because he had been celebrating this whole time, even though his son was dead, he didn't know. And the Greeks would tell this story to remember the importance of hearing the truth, even if it is painful. I mean, we all get this, right? Sometimes the truth hurts. Now, there are a lot of parallels you might have noticed in in the story of Croesus and the story we're reading right now, but I bring it up to bring up this question. Think about this for yourself. How do you decide what's good news and what's bad? How do you decide what's good and what's bad? You might think it's obvious, but think again. Think again. Verse 27. Okay, listen to what David says. He is a good man and he comes with good news. What do you think David is thinking here? What do you think he's thinking? Do you think for him, his son's death would be considered good news? Obviously not. Of course not. But this is why I brought up Croesus. And you're like, Pastor, can you be a little bit more clear? You're so confusing. I wish Eric was up here. The reason I brought up Croesus is because his definitions of good news and bad news changed after the experience with his son. Do you understand this? Before his son died, good news was basically anything that made him feel good. And bad news was anything that made him feel bad. No one wanted to make him sad. No one wanted to make him upset or hurt. That's why they didn't share these things. But after his son died and he didn't know and he was celebrating, he did away with that rule. Because for him, the definitions changed. Now for him, what he wanted to hear was the truth. Even if it did hurt. Excuse me. Even if it felt bad. Does this make sense? Do you guys get what I'm saying? See, this is where we're going to start here. This is what the text is kind of forcing us to start thinking about. What is your definition of good and bad or good and bad news? What's your definition? How do you think about it? What's good and what's bad? Because how we think about this issue will determine so much of how we live our lives, how we approach it, how we react to it, how we deal with certain situations how we think about what people share with us. It'll change the way, for example, just to make it practical, it'll change the way that you think about correction in your life. When someone gives you constructive criticism, when someone says, hey, you know, um, I just noticed this thing about you. Okay, I just wanted to tell you so that you would know this. If you think that good things are only things that make you feel good, you're never going to think correction is good. You're never going to think that a rebuke could be helpful. You're never going to think that someone could criticize you in a constructive way. But what if it's true? What if it could help you in the future? What if it could improve your relationships right now? If only you knew this thing, if only you you weren't so blind to this blind spot in your life, can it be good in a different way? Or what about, here's another practical thing. What about evangelism? Some of us struggle with evangelism because it's so hard for us to tell someone something that might make them feel bad. I don't want to tell someone they're a sinner. 
I don't want to tell someone about hell. I don't want to tell someone that God is holy and that he's going to judge the living and the dead because they might be offended by that and they might actually be hurt by that. And I don't want them to dislike me either. I don't want to feel bad. I don't want anyone else to feel bad. But the problem is, does that mean we shouldn't tell them what we believe the truth to be, especially if they need to hear that truth in order to actually be saved from their sin? And then what about the issue of this text particularly? What about hearing news that something didn't go well, that someone didn't make it, that you're not going to have the life you thought you were going to have? It never feels good to get news like this. But let me ask you this. Would you rather be lied to? Would you rather not know the truth? See, the truth is, the truth does hurt sometimes. But the truth is better than lies. Now, let's take a step back. Okay, David's not wrong. Ahimaaz does bring good news in a sense, at least according to Ahimaaz. But it's the last thing David wants to hear. And it's because what's going on here is deeper than news. It's deeper than words. The reporting is just talking and sharing about what happened. But Joab has already killed Absalom. What's happened has happened. Okay, I'd rather hear the news than, I'd rather hear the truth than hear lies. But at the same time, no one wants to hear that their son is killed. The deed is done though, and it's the deed that is the cause for David's grief. And so here, after we think about this issue a little bit, we're going to be challenged to dive deeper to the second point, the dilemma. We can see the lose-lose situation unfolding before our very eyes. The truth is going to out because it's not just David finding out. It's the fact that David lost his son. Second point, the dilemma, which is about the reality, maybe even the difficulty of losing. In the Lord of the Rings, if you're a big Lord of the Ring fan, or even if you're not, there's a passage where King Theoden, uh, you know, I don't know much about Lord of the Rings. I saw this online on some website. But anyway, where King Theoden, I never even read the book, but it's in the book. It's not in the movie. I'm not as big of a Lord of the Ring fan as I'm a Star Trek fan. Um, but there's a passage where King Theoden, he's the king of Rohan, he mourns the death of his son. And there's a line in the book where he says this. Theoden says, it should not be for the father to bury his son. And what he's getting at is that it's wrong. This isn't the natural order of things. It shouldn't be this way. Fathers should never outlive their kids. It's not the created way. So Ahimaaz gets there first, verse 28. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord, the king. First of all, he says, all is well, which in Hebrew is shalom, peace. And then he praises God for the victory, that all is well and good. But that's not the first thing on David's heart. Verse 29, and the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and he stood still. Now, this might surprise you. And it is a little surprising. Ahimaaz actually doesn't know exactly what happened. Maybe this partly explains his eagerness to tell David the news. But one thing we know for sure, he heard from Joab that Absalom is dead. He knows the cold, hard fact. He just didn't see it himself. And my guess is he sees the look on David's face when he shows up. 
He says, all is well, praise God. But he sees the look on David's face, the concern, the fear even that his son is not well. And maybe even the hope that his son might be alive still. And he just can't bring himself to deliver that cold hard fact to David, especially if he wasn't there, if he doesn't know the details. He doesn't want to just say, and uh, Joab told me that Absalom is dead. He doesn't want to say that. So they wait for the Cushite to get there, verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came just right after them. And the Cushite said, good news for my Lord, the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. You hear that right? Good news. But the Cushite knows not what he says. And David says again, verse 32, the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Now, not a lot of detail here either, but this Cushite doesn't know David like Ahima as does. This Cushai just says what any servant would tell the king. Basically, hopefully, all your enemies and anyone who is evil gets what they deserve, meaning death, just like Absalom got. That's the gist. And David gets it. Absalom is gone. But it's not just the news. It's the way he talks about it. It's very revealing. In the third party, Cushite's understanding, Absalom is just an enemy and an evil person. Do you see that? And here's the central tension, which we introduced in the beginning. Now we got to get into it. It's the, uh, what we talked about in the beginning, love and justice, love and rightness. Everyone, literally everyone in this text, when they think Absalom, what they think is evil guy, enemy, problem to be solved, something we need to pray for deliverance from. When he's gone, everyone's like, ding dong, the witch is dead, or rather praise God that he saved us from this evil. Everyone thinks this, except David. Do you see that? Everyone is viewing it one way. David views it another. When David thinks of Absalom, the first thing he thinks is, well, just look at verse 33, hear it from his own mouth. And the king was what? He was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, count it five times. He says, my son, my son. Now there's this old story about these two villages uh, in the Andes mountains. And the way the story goes is that there was a village that was kind of up on a mountain. And then there was one at the base of the mountain and they would sometimes have conflict and even war and battles. And one day the, the tribe or village or whatever from up on the mountains came down the mountain and they attacked the, the base, you know, the, the lowland people and, and they plundered them. They took some stuff and they even kidnapped a baby. And they took this baby away kind of as ransom or whatever. And the lowlanders, they sent out a group of their bravest and strongest to scale the mountain, not just to fight back, but to get the baby home. But the problem was they were people who didn't live in the mountains. They didn't know even where that village was. And they didn't know how to kind of climb or what, what uh, paths to take or, or what trails were available. They didn't know. So after several days of excruciating but ultimately futile effort, they came back home defeated. However, as they were going down the mountain, 
they saw someone else kind of behind them, or they heard someone else behind them also coming down the mountain. And when they looked, they saw that it was actually a woman from their village. And when she got closer, they realized it was the mother of that baby. Apparently, she had just gone on her own to try to find her baby. And then when they looked even closer, they realized that she wasn't wearing a pack on her back, but she was actually carrying her baby on her back. And they were, of course, really happy. But then they said, how, how did you do this? Like, we've been trying for days to try to get this baby. We, we made so little progress. Like, how did you find it? How did you climb up the mountain? How? And all she said was, well, it wasn't your baby. It wasn't your baby. Yes, everyone thinks that it's great that Absalom, the problem, the rebel, the dangerous uh, enemy who dared to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed is dead. But Absalom wasn't their baby. Do you understand this? I mean, did you know that Absalom, what it means in Hebrew is my father's peace. Ab means father. Salam is from Shalom, which means peace. And when Ahimaaz first showed up, the first words out of his mouth were all as well. But in Hebrew, it was simply shalom. And you might have forgotten this. But the last words, actually, that Absalom ever spoke to David, the last word was shalom. Do you think David's hopes might have gone up and then been dashed to pieces? When he hears shalom from Ahimaaz, don't you think he allowed his heart for a second to go to that place of thinking, maybe this is all going to work out. We can win and also Absalom can live. You know, the, to the Hebrew mind, shalom was more than just peace as we might think of it. In biblical times, the Hebrew word, it was more nuanced and complex and full than our English word peace. See, for us, peace, I mean, it's not like it's wrong, but peace simply means an absence of war or maybe like inner tranquility, like I had some peace about it. But shalom, even though it meant those things, it meant more. It meant the world as it should be. It was a word that described the world before the fall. It meant rightness. Things were right. And yet, there's no peace. And yes, there is some peace now that Absalom is dead in the sense that the war is over. But understand the dilemma How can David be at peace when his son is gone? On the one hand, it is right, but on the other hand, it's completely wrong. And that's why I said Kobayashi Maru. There was no actual winning here, not for David, at least. Sure, some perspective could help, right? He's alive. His friends are alive. His problems are dealt with. God has been gracious. But again, the cold, hard reality is no amount of perspective is going to bring back his son. So here's a question. Think about this. How would you answer, was it good that Absalom died or was it bad? Was it good or bad? Or think about it like this. Was Absalom an evil rebel or was he David's son? Or how about this? Should David have rejoiced the reason why everyone else was rejoicing, that God delivered them, that God helped them, or should David have mourned because his son was gone? Was it wrong for him to weep? 
See, when you put it this way, you realize the true nature of this dilemma. You realize that in this specific situation and in many situations, it's not all good or all bad. It's not just about reframing things totally. You realize that there is no perfect solution. David's despondency, his sorrow, it's understandable. It's even right because fathers aren't supposed to have to bury their sons. It's not how it should be. In fact, if you read the scriptures, death shouldn't even be. Death is an enemy. Nothing about death is actually in of itself good. So here's the takeaway. And then we'll move on to the final point. This isn't how the world should be, but it is how the world is now. Because the truth is too, sons shouldn't rebel against their fathers either. The truth is the law says that if you rebel against your father, then you deserve a punishment. And if you lift your hand against the Lord's anointed, then you do deserve death. And that happened. So let me put this out there. And this is for you guys to think about, for me to think about too. But how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? And what I mean by it is how do we deal with the cold reality of this world? Like what have we been doing already? Has it been working for us? How do you deal with close friends who betray your trust? What do you do? How do you handle loved ones who let you down? What can you do when someone you care so much about is clearly a toxic person, as people say these days? There might not be one size, a one size fits all approach in your life, but think about how you tend to go. Maybe you're the kind of person who cuts people off completely. That's kind of common advice nowadays. If there's a toxic, difficult person who's kind of holding you back in life, then what you should do is just cut them off, right? Leave them behind in the rearview mirror. Uh, Get a new relationship. Get a new friend. Get a new spouse, whatever it might be. Get people who hurt you out of your life so you won't keep getting hurt. And it makes sense. And yet, it's not so easy, right? Because what if the person who hurts you is like your child, And maybe they're not trying to hurt you actively, but it's just the choices that they're making hurt you and emotionally wound you. What are you supposed to do? Just leave your kid? You can't do that. And what about the reality that everyone sins? If being sinful makes someone toxic, then you're going to find that every single new friend you make is going to have the same problem. They're going to be a sinner. They're going to let you down. They're not going to be perfect. You're going to have to eliminate everyone eventually. And when you do this, Uh, you see this, right? You see people who don't have any friends, don't have any relationships for X amount of time because they always come to a point where that person lets them down. They cut them off, try to find someone new. They get their hopes up. Maybe this guy will be perfect. Maybe this girl will be the one I'm looking for. And then a year later, two years later, that's done. But if it's not the solution to cut people off, what are we supposed to do then when people hurt us, when people let us down? When people take advantage of us and sin against us, are we supposed to enable their behavior? Some of us do. Some of us lean the other way. We're constantly kind of allowing these things to happen. We don't know what to do. We forgive it or not even forgive it. That might not even be the right term. We excuse it. We excuse it. We figure, well, everyone's a sinner and it's true, but then we let people hurt other people. We don't know what to do. And this is what happened with David, honestly. 
If David went one way or the other, he definitely went toward enablement with his kids. If you remember, when Amnon raped Tamar, he said absolutely nothing. Nothing. That's why, partially why Absalom was so mad, why he turned against his father, why he thought his father was a trash king, because of this. And then when Absalom started to slip away, when it became increasingly clear that he was going down a bad path, again, David said, nothing. So you might be wondering, pastor, what are we supposed to do then? Okay, you don't see a solution, maybe. And if you're starting to really think about it, I think you're on the right track. What are you supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Well, first of all, and then we'll go to the third point and we'll end this. Know yourself. Okay, just try to figure out yourself. Right, the word of God, it, it helps us to know the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Know what you tend toward. Do you tend toward enablement and excusing sin in the name of love? Or do you tend toward unrealistic expectations of perfect behavior and then disillusionment and then punishment in the name of justice? What kind of person are you? Be honest with yourself. And then let's go to the third point. And then we'll land this plane quickly. The denunciation, the denunciation, the dispatch. It was about the news, the dilemma. It's about the facts that are underneath the news. If you see what I'm saying, the denunciation, this is how Joab and David hash it out. And this is really about what happens when we come to the end of ourselves and hopefully turn to God. See, here's the thing. There's no easy solution. In fact, it's impossible to have a perfect win-win, hence the Kobayashi Maru stuff. However, that being said, that doesn't mean there's no hope. We have to see, though, how Joab reacts to David's reaction. We have to see these two opposite extremes. So chapter 19, verse 1. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. What's wrong with that? Well, verse 2. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. Now, it's not wrong in of itself for David to be sad, but in his mourning, he turned this great victory into a defeat. Verse 3, and the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So everything is reversed, right? They won, they should be coming home, but now it's almost like they're fleeing, like they were defeated, like they're retreating. It's like they lost. Keep reading. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. But then verse five, maybe your heart breaks or maybe you're thinking exactly what Joab is about to say. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Job lets him have it. And Job is a complicated person, but if anything, Job is a realist. And he reminds David that there is still more to lose here. 
There's still more to lose. If he only focuses on his love for Absalom, he is going to lose everyone else, his servants, his family, his friends. I mean, did you hear what he said? He said, you hate those who love you and love those who hate you. And of course, David would say, no, I love everybody, right? I don't love Absalom more. I don't hate my wives. I don't hate my concubines. I don't hate Solomon and my other sons. But Job is pointing out that's exactly what you're doing because our lives are saved and you're crying, You've been choosing Absalom over all of us. I mean, what do you think? Do you think he's right? I think some of us do. I can tell by reading the commentators. Some of them are more Joab types and some are more David types. They're like, how could Joab be so cruel here? Other people are like, Joab tells him like it is, right? He gives him the hard truth. Look, the word of God, again, it helps us discern our hearts. Whoever you sympathize with more here, it probably says something about you. Anyway, keep going. What does David say? Does he say, how dare you speak to me this way? I'm the king. My son is dead. God do so and more to me. If you don't pay for talking to me like this, does he say, I get it, but I can't right now. Okay, just give me a second. Okay, I'm just trying to deal with my son. Don't you understand? How can he be so cruel and heartless and callous? I mean, wasn't Absalom, he was your relative too. He was your cousin. Have a heart. He doesn't say either. And we would understand, I think, if he did say it. But we also understand what Joab is saying. David does too, verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. And that's the end of the text we're going to be in today. Joab just, he lets the king have it for real. He rebukes him. He's a subordinate, he's a nephew, but he still just says it for the sake of the kingdom. And it's because it's on his own heart. And David, what does he do? He rises up from his morning. He probably washes his face. He composes himself. He walks to his seat and he sits down as, what are the last two words? The king. Now I said earlier, that the Kobayashi Maru was programmed to be unwinnable. It was the whole point. Commanding officers need to learn that sometimes you just can't win in life. You got to accept losing and accept it graciously. And that's what David is kind of doing here. He's accepting defeat. He doesn't like it. He wishes Absalom was here, but he knows no amount of weeping will bring his son back. And there are other things to attend to. And he needs to bite the bullet now and be the king. Joab isn't wrong. So David takes the loss. And the thing is, the reason I brought up the Kobayashi Maru is because every Starfleet cadet for all time took the loss, except for one. And if you know Star Trek at all, the greatest captain in the history of Star Trek, the goat of captains, right, is Captain Picard. Just kidding. It is Captain Kirk, right? It's Captain James C. Kirk. And he won the unwinnable. He beat the unbeatable. How? He cheated. He snuck in to where the test was programmed and he reprogrammed it so that you could win. And of course, he got in trouble. It didn't count. But everyone admired his attitude because what he told them was, I don't believe in a no-win situation. I don't believe in a no-win scenario. Now, keep that in mind as we look at how the paragraph ends again. Then the king arose, verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, what? The king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. And what is being emphasized here? Now, it's interesting too. I don't know if you've been paying attention, 
to kind of how this has been working throughout 2 Samuel, or especially in our passage today, if you count how many times David is called the king, 29 times. Far more than he's called Absalom's dad or called even David. See, what's being emphasized here is that he is the king that God has chosen. He is the Lord's anointed more than he is a father or a brother or a son or a husband or even David. Even his own personality isn't being emphasized. It's his role and responsibility as the king whom God chose. And there's another thing that's being emphasized here. It's interesting Right, that David, and maybe this is what he said, that's why it's there, but the text goes out of its way to record it for us. When David finds out, what does he say? He says, oh no, Absalom. No, he says, my son, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, my son. How did he think about Absalom? As his son, eight times total, repeatedly, he kept saying it. Now put two and two together. What was the promise that was made to David about the kingdom? God appeared to him and he said that one of your sons will sit on the throne forever. That's how salvation is going to come to this country, to the world, through one of your sons. Now, Amnon, the firstborn, is dead. The secondborn is never talked about after childhood. He probably passed away as a child. Absalom, the most kingly of all, the thirdborn, the crown prince, now he is dead too. And the issue that the text forces us to consider through repetition, pounding it into our minds, The king and his son, the king and his son, the king and his son. The issue is the promise. Why isn't God doing what he said? Can God do what he said? Because things don't seem to be working out that well. It seems like you're trying to follow God and everything just falls apart. There's no winning in this world. Doesn't matter if God promises something to you. You can't get things right. But God, okay, he makes his promises. And this is how it's always been. God makes his promises. They sound great. And then the cold, hard reality sets in. And then we doubt. I mean, don't you remember God told Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Out of your family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the only problem was he and his wife had no kids. Now, they were relatively young. They still had time to have kids. But then years go by, decades go by. And then Abraham's like 100 years old. Sarah, his wife, is 90. And then angels show up and they tell Abraham and Sarah, the promise is still on. In fact, next year, you will have a kid. And Sarah's 90 years old. All right, think about that. Picture a 90-year-old person in your mind. Okay, it's not the time to have a kid. Okay, she says it's impossible. Paul even said in Romans that Abraham's body was as good as dead. Kind of messed up, right? I can imagine Paul going to heaven and Abraham's like, why'd you say that, man? Like I had a kid. Anyway, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. They didn't believe. Sarah laughed. She thought it was ridiculous. No way is this promise going to happen because it's impossible. And then they had Isaac. When Sarah doubted, the angel said with a straight face, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And that's it. See, you got to understand. So many things are impossible for us. But God can bring the dead back to life. That's another thing Paul said. Why is it so crazy to think that God can raise the dead? God can deliver us from the most evil and powerful of enemies. No matter how the odds are stacked against us. God can hate the sin and love the sinner in a way that is perfect. 
believe it. Do you believe it? And God can help us. In fact, he already has. And we'll close with this. We'll close here. One of the most well-known interactions that Jesus ever had was with this young man who we call the rich young ruler. We find out from Matthew, Mark, and Luke when we put all the stories together that he was rich, he was young, and he was a leader in the community. So he's the rich young ruler. You can read about it in Mark 10, Matthew 19, Luke 18. But let me just give you the gist. This rich young ruler, he asked Jesus what he must do to be saved. He says, good teacher, what must... What good must I do to inherit eternal life? He's clearly troubled, okay? He knows he's missing something. He doesn't have assurance. And he seems to be the perfect candidate for evangelism. He's the one asking, how can I be saved? We wish people at work would ask us this. But Jesus says something interesting, though. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's redirecting the conversation, and he's inviting the rich and ruler to consider his words. What is good? How do you think of good? And then Jesus goes on. Well, you know the commandments. Okay, you know. And he lists off some of the Ten Commandments. Basic morality 101. He says, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. And the rich young ruler says, okay, yes. I've kept all of those since I was a kid. What do I still lack? And then Jesus, without missing a beat, all of a sudden goes right to the heart of the matter. He says, very well, if you want to know. Sell everything you have, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And we say, wait a minute. I thought it was by grace through faith right, that saves us. I thought he would say, believe in me. It is. Okay, but Jesus sees right through this man and he knows that he is the rich young ruler, that he has great possessions and that his wealth has a hold on his heart. So he makes it super simple. He makes it a question of how much do you actually want eternal life? And the scriptures tell us, that he walks away sad, despondent, and sorrowful. And the implication is he didn't want eternal life after all. And if we, if we, could, set this, uh, if we could set this story in the context of our sermon today, the rich young ruler saw it as a no-win scenario. He saw it as lose-lose. Either way, he felt like he was losing. Either I have to lose all this stuff I love, or I have to learn, uh, lose eternal life. That's why he makes his choice, but he's sad. He would have been sad either way, but the story isn't over. Listen to what happened next. I'll read from Mark 10. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said with man, This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What does Jesus say? Just have a different perspective? Not exactly. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. See, okay. What the rich young ruler didn't realize is that with Jesus, there is no losing. 
Losing is winning. See, because the truth is, it is impossible to be saved. And because we live in a fallen world because of sin, we face no-win scenarios all the time. We don't want what we should want. We want things we shouldn't. We endure losses and suffering and sacrifice and death. We make mistakes. But Jesus stepped in. God sent his own beloved son to die for our peace. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. But then he was arrested and he was tried and found guilty. And it was wrong, but he was crucified on a Roman cross, tortured to death as a criminal, even though he was innocent. And his disciples were devastated. How could Jesus lose? It doesn't make sense. But what they didn't understand at the time was that the cross wasn't losing. It was winning. Do you see this? That on the cross, love and justice met in perfect union. As the son of God out of love bore the wrath our sins deserve. He took the death that we deserve. He bore the penalty that we deserve so that God could deal gently with us. Even though our sins are as scarlet, though we are rebels, each and every one. Absalom died. Understand this, but God chose Solomon to be king. And then son after son after son, each king failed, but God's promise didn't. Jesus was born in the line of David, the last of his sons who came to make the impossible possible. God took Absalom, but what he gave Jesus was a greater son and a greater peace. And the Bible calls this good news. And it's not just for David, it's for us. God's own son died so that our losses could be turned into wins. All things work together for good for those who are called Romans 8. Even the worst of things. And God himself has seen to it that our sacrifices won't be in vain for those who have left houses and family and children even. For his name's sake, will receive back a hundredfold and even eternal life. Death isn't the last word. We can forgive knowing that we're not just letting people off the hook, but that God will take care of it because we've seen his perfect love and his perfect justice. In fact, we have received his perfect love and his son received his perfect justice. So could we just believe it? Could we just believe it? That nothing is too hard for God. That real hope is possible. Real forgiveness is possible. Real peace, real relationships with sinners, real honesty and accountability. These things are actually possible, but only in him. And you might have questions about how this works. Practically, you might have a situation in mind that you're thinking of. Please don't hesitate to reach out. That's why we're here to talk about those things. Just know that it is possible. And who will point you to isn't to us, but to him. So whatever it is, whether it's in this life or the next, he will take care of it. It's all in him. Let's go to him right now in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we, Lord, we know that with us, so many things are impossible. And we struggle God, we're not perfect. But God, we know that we can look to you. God, we know that you you are infinitely greater than we are. God, we know that you will punish every sin, that no sin will 
ever get swept under the rug. And yet, Father, we know that at the same time, we can forgive as we have been forgiven. God, that we can live with hope and with confidence. God, that things will work out the way that they should, the way that is good, the way that you want. So God, I pray that you would draw our hearts toward you in faith. God, that we would not give up hope. God, that we would never think that anything is too hard for you. And God, I pray that you would do your work, the, the work that only you can do in us, in our church, in this world for your glory. Blessings in Christ's name. Amen.